0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on another Tuesday evening, where we continue our reflections into Paul's second epistle to the Church of Corinth, his second letter to the Corinthians, where we have been talking about a great number of things. And what I want to do before I jump into chapter three is to really wrap up our discussion on chapter two. Uh, Among other things, we were talking about the importance of the in God and for other moment, right? And really being present to what it means to be also the aroma for Christ as St. Paul himself speaks to it, as St. Paul himself was um, the aroma for Christ. To be aroma, to be a fragrance, is to be what? Something that is attractive, right? Something that is attractive. You know, you've heard me talk about how we are called not to be the hammer on the nail, Uh, but the bloom to the flower, right? That sweet-smelling fragrance, because that is what attracts. That is what attracts. Now, those verses came to us from chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, and I do want to talk about a couple more things, and then we will get into chapter 3. The first of which is this call we have to make a decision, this call we have to respond to the reality that God is love, and He calls us to love as He loves. If you want a relationship, I want you to go back, if you will, to the first time your beloved told you that he or she loved you. How did you respond? I'm sure if, if the love was mutual, your heart leapt for joy, right? To hear those words, and I'm sure that many of you knew exactly where you were and what you were doing when you heard those words, I love you for the first time. And maybe, just maybe, you no longer respond to those words the same way uh, you used to, those all-important words, I love you. I want you to think about this and apply it to the spiritual life. Think about the first time you heard those words, I love you from Jesus Christ, or the first time that you were made aware of our Lord's love for you and what it did for you. Did your heart leap for joy? <laughs> right? If you are in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm going to think it did. Yes. And maybe, now maybe, you don't think about it the same way all the time. You don't uh, respond to God's love maybe the way you initially did. And yet, this is what is before us. Just as we are called to love our beloved those who are closest to us, the same way we did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Are we to love as God loves us, huh? What is the whole spiritual life about but loving God as much as God loves us? When Jesus says, be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect, what is he really saying there in Matthew 5, 48? Are we going to attain perfection this side of the heavenly Jerusalem? Brothers and sisters, He is calling us to constant conversion, right? He is calling us to go deeper in our love for Him. This is what St. John talks about in his three epistles when he's talking about God who is love. So we have this decision to make, right? We have this call to embrace God's message of love that He communicated to us by sending His beloved Son. Brothers and sisters, should we not see God's gift of His Son as an invitation to us, an invitation to go deeper. Why does St. Paul talk about the aroma of Christ, being the aroma for Christ? Because, quite simply, my friends, to be the aroma of Christ for the world is to become an invitation for the world to go deeper into the very life and love of God. Huh? Now, what about this language of bearing witness to truth that came at the very end of chapter 2. Brothers and sisters, we have to be mindful that there are great dangers of peddling and diluting God's Word. Paul's criticism of the intruding missionaries there in verses 16 and 17 for peddling and deluding the gospel should serve as a caution for anyone who preaches and teaches the Word of God. Maybe some of us at times can be tempted to preach only what people want to hear. Maybe leaving out inconvenient or unpopular or challenging aspects of God's word or the church's teaching. Maybe ulterior motives such as ambition, success, and popularity distort the way you engage your ministry. Paul's words should challenge us. What do we read in chapter 2, verse 17? For we are not like the many who trade on the word of God. Huh? There it is. But as out of sincerity, indeed, as from God and in the presence of God, we speak in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, we can only speak about Christ if we are what? What did (laughs) St. Paul just say? If we are living in God, only then will what we say be what it needs to be. So my dear friends, if you are someone who is challenged by this for one reason or another, pray that God may dwell within you, that like St. Paul, out of a sincerity of heart, you speak boldly of God's saving love. Fear not, right? Fear not, and you will overcome. If we are to fear anything, it should be the fear of not being in God's love. So let us repent of our sins right, and go deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, so two very important pieces before we get back into the verses of chapter 3. First, <laughs> that we are present to this call that we have a decision to make, and that decision is about responding to God with love out from the invitation that He gives us in His very Son, Jesus Christ. And second, if you are someone who plays around with God's Word, bear witness to truth, live in the presence of God, as Saint Paul says, and out of a sincerity of heart, proclaim the word of God boldly. All right, boldly. All right, so with that, let us go ahead and jump back into chapter 3, Paul's second epistle to the church of Corinth here. I will go ahead and read chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts, to be known and be read by all men. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God, who has qualified us to be ministers of a new covenant. Not in a written code, but in the Spirit. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, what do we have going on here? Well, what about this phrase, letters of recommendation. Most commentaries will will highlight that written referrals were sometimes sent ahead of traveling missionaries to prepare for their arrival in a new church. Here, it is apparent that Paul's opponents led some Corinthians into thinking that they were genuine apostles. In contrast, what is it that Paul does? Well, Paul does not need to re-establish rapport in Corinth by written statements but he simply points out to the church's conversion as a proof that his ministry is authentic. Huh? Were we not talking about something like this yesterday, where the greatest proof, the greatest apologetic of Jesus Christ is those who bear witness to his very life? What is St. Paul saying here? He essentially is saying, the greatest proof I have isn't written on paper or written on stone. No, it is the life that is bearing witness to the teachings that I bear witness to, Jesus Christ. We don't need letters of recommendation. Incidentally, (laughs) I should say something here. You know, I, I have written a great number of letters of recommendation over the years. And I have to say, I don't always speak to, say, the Beatitudes within my letters of recommendation unless I'm asked to speak about the spirituality of someone. But I have to tell you something, maybe I should. (laughs) Certainly in any letter of recommendation, you are to build up the person for what they have done. But remember that the focus should never be on what we do, but first who we are, who we are in God. I'm challenging myself here. Maybe my letters of recommendation should uh, highlight the way they exercise the Beatitudes, because that's what it's about certainly I will look to do so. (laughs) Now, this language of the Spirit, in verses uh, three and four, clearly Paul is drawing from two prophecies about the Messianic age, and I actually want to read these two prophecies. The first is uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. Uh, You don't necessarily have to go there now. I'll go ahead and read it. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34 behold the days are coming says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt my covenant which they broke though I was their husband says the Lord but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord I will put my law within them And I will write it upon their hearts. Uh, There it is. I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The other great prophecy can be found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27 listen to these verses. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Wow, <laughs> rich stuff. I mean, listen to those verses in light of what Paul says here in verses three and four. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. So what is going on here? Well, St. Paul is letting the Church of Corinth know that in the end, we can write up all the letters of of recommendation we want and build ourselves up, but in the end, it is about the law that was etched onto our very heart, put there by the Holy Spirit in baptism. That's what converts, and that's what at the same time bears witness to truth. In this case, the truth of who St. Paul is, right? We're just not talking about the truth of Jesus Christ, and orthodox truth. We are also talking about the virtue of truthfulness, huh? The virtue of truthfulness, identifying something for what it is, and ultimately receiving the grace and strength to bear witness to that truth. Okay, verse 5, our sufficiency is from God. What's important here, my friends, and we've seen this time and time again with St. Paul, Paul makes no claim to be qualified for apostleship apart from God's grace. He understands well that God does not call the qualified, but qualifies the call, right? That's what it's about. This is in marked contrast to the false apostles, who again were trying to display and augment their credentials. St. Paul is certainly also alluding to the call of Moses, in the Greek version of Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. Why? Well, like Moses, who complains that his poor speaking ability made him unfit to be a prophet, Paul sees himself as unskilled in speaking. Nevertheless, he is confident. He is confident that the grace of God more than compensates for his personal weakness. My dear friends, when you take a careful look at the 12 apostles, it is pretty clear That God was not calling the qualified, if you will. Interestingly enough, the only one who might have been uh, considered versed enough in the faith would have been who? But Judas, and look what happened there. (laughs) Right. So, in the end, I think our lesson here is never let your pride lead you in what you do, but always be mindful first of the humility in God and be poor in spirit, as the Beatitudes call us to be poor in spirit. Okay, verse six who has qualified us to be ministers of a new covenant, of a new covenant. What's going on there? Well, if you are a faithful listener to this radio program, you know that the word covenant is very important to better understanding our faith. The term new covenant first appears where? But in the passage we just read, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, what's interesting here is this is not only the first time we read of the new covenant in the Old Testament, but the only time we read of the new covenant in the Old Covenant. So, Jeremiah's prophecy here, Jeremiah's oracle, is the obvious precedent for the five times that you see the word new covenant in the New Testament. Oh, by the way, my friends, was originally called the Apostolic Documents, right? Because (laughs) we didn't have the phrase New Testament until much later. We'll talk about that in a bit. So, in the New Testament, or in the Apostolic Documents, the phrase New Testament appears five times. Uh, Now, in better understanding what St. Paul is after when he uses this Greek new covenant, it would help us to understand what he means by using the Greek kiene, because that Greek expresses a quality in covenant making that is different from anything that has gone before it, a quality that we could say uh, of freshness and permanence. The same Greek is used to describe our Lord's new commandment, uh, kiene, new commandment, and also of his creation as a new heaven and a new earth. You see, my friends, these are things that remain new even thousands of years after they first appeared on the scene. So when St. Paul is talking about him being a minister of the new covenant, what is he talking about? Well, the covenant that will be the same today as it was yesterday forevermore. Now, all of that being said, um, how then do we explain the preponderance of uh, the English term New Testament? Well, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, in his work Consuming the Word, responds to this question, and I just want to hit it here. The distinction appears only in Western translations, which have been influenced by the Old Latin and the Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate, my friends, is what St. Jerome penned in 431 AD. He's the great saint that translated all of the Hebrew, uh, Aramaic, and Greek into the Latin, right? So, so continuing here with uh, Scott Hahn. Seeking an equivalent for berith and diatheke in Roman culture, Latin speakers found nothing exact and settled on the Latin word testamentum, a word often associated with bequests, my last will and testament, right? So thus, as Scott Hahn reflects, ancient testaments often take the form of farewell discourses delivered by Israel's father figures, i.e. Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Jesus, so on and so forth. So facing death, These men gathered their sons, tribes, or disciples, typically 12, to renew their covenant and impart future blessing for their families. Other examples of testamentary literature can be found among the Dead Sea Scrolls and elsewhere. So essentially, my friends, what Scott Hahn is here explaining is that a testament is a final statement of one's lasting moral legacy. In that sense, testamentum was the best of the available options in Latin. Hence, the documents of the apostolic generations took on this word testament. And it's still an inexact thing in many ways, because when we hear the words new covenant, do we think about the New Testament? Not necessarily, not all the time, right? We think about our Lord's words in the upper room when he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. But think about it, my friends, how powerful is it to consider that when he said this is the blood of the new covenant. Essentially he said, this is the blood of the new what? Testament. Testament. We often get the question asked, where is the mass in the New Testament? Well, could we not say that the mass, in so far as we are going to speak to the Eucharist as the mass, is the New Testament? Yes, it is a fair question. <laughs> where is the mass, in the New Testament? You go to mass and you see it everywhere. It's everywhere. Because why? The Mass is the New Testament. The Eucharist is the New Testament. In point of fact, when you go into the Church Fathers, and here I not only speak as a Catholic, but as a Christian, if you're a Christian, the Church Fathers are your fathers too, right? (laughs) If you go back into the Church Fathers, what you will quickly see is that the phrase New Testament wasn't tied to a corpus of books, but Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, literally. Why? Because of what Jesus said, what we read in Luke twenty-two twenty, when Jesus was in the upper room and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which again we can translate as, this is the blood of the New Testament. So when you hear the phrase New Testament, what do you think about? A corpus of books? No. Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. We talk about the gospel being a saving, transforming message. What greater good news is there, if we're going to define gospel as good news, (laughs) what greater good news is there than the Eucharist itself being the New Testament? Because the Eucharist, literally speaking, transforms us, making us more like Christ the more we receive him. So some rich stuff here. I know if you are hearing this for the first time, you might be scratching your head, but what I want to encourage you to do is to go back into Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Read it in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 and following. Uh, write those verses down. Consider our Lord himself in Luke 22, verse 20, and consider all of the narratives where Jesus is in the upper room. Read those verses in context. Read John 6. Read John 6 carefully, and what you will discover is yes, in fact, the Eucharist not only is the New Testament, but something that we are called to share profoundly in. And so, if we are going to be proclaiming the goodness of the New Testament, it would be right that we go back and take stock in what St. Paul means when he talks about the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 6 especially in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? So, very, very important. Okay, I'm looking up the clock, and we are out of time. If you have any questions, comments, observations for me about anything we have talked about on this radio program, not only this evening, but anything I have talked about, if there's been a question, if there is a question that is burning on your heart about the Catholic faith, or just a question more generally about Christianity, maybe it's a question about the relationship between church and state certainly there's a lot in the news about that these days send your question my way you can you can send me an email at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com or as always you can go to my website at joholcraft.org. j-o-e-h-o-l-l-c-r-a-f-t dot org send your message your question on its way and i will gladly respond to it either personally or with your permission on air here at uh, seeds of truth all right let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of this time. This time we have together to reflect into the richness of your word that the deeper we go, the more we realize how little we know. <laughs> and only by your grace can we begin to discover the beauty of this depth that you call us to. Amen.